Welcome to episode 24 of Upshift, the No Direction Network's Essence 20 podcast, where every two weeks we give you an edge on Essence 20. I'm Ryan Costello, one of the designers of the Essence 20 system, and one of the authors on the G.I. Joe, Transformers, and My Little Pony role-playing game, Core Rulebooks, as well as a dozen other Essence 20 RPG products published by Renegade Game Studios. Normally, I'm joined by Jason Keeley, former developer on the Essence 20 line at Renegade, but unfortunately, Jason is still not available to record, and so I am once again flying solo. And uh, today's topic is something that's been on the topic list for a while and was originally going to be included in that Field Guide to Action Adventure trilogy that we put out. Well, then Gen Con came up and other things. And so uh, we are now talking about it. And by we, I mean I. We're talking about threat design in Essence 20. It is a topic that I would like to eventually cover with Jason. I Jason has developed Essence 20 threats. And he has designed and developed a lot of Pathfinder and Starfinder threats. So just uh, um, monsters or, or, you know, the, the this this monsters we'll just call them monsters those stat blocks those npcs that pcs pcs are meant to fight uh, he's been on both sides of the design and development side of it so maybe when he comes back we'll just do a grab bag of these are the topics we talked about when you were gone let's just now cover the jason perspective on all of them but i decided that i would be doing threats today because it is a topic that i feel very comfortable talking about comfortable enough to record a solo podcast uh you see Threat design is actually one of the areas that I've done a lot of work in Essence 20, and in fact is one of the areas that I uh, originally got to stand out as, uh, as you know, just for my design chops and for as a guy who was willing to just be all in on Essence 20 and do whatever I could to make sure that this system uh, was a success. So when I say that I've got a lot of experience with it, I designed all of the threats in the G.I. Joe role-playing game core rulebook. And this was something that um, I was presented with the formula for how our essences would work. And we wanted to make sure that the essence scores of uh, NPCs worked the same way as PCs. So you had your four essences. Those define your defenses. They define your skills. And then your skills work the exact same way as a PC does. Where NPCs differ is that instead of getting, uh, you know, a, a set progression based on your role and based on uh, your origin and influences, instead they just get the specific powers and perks that they need to accomplish their purpose as the, the threat. So when I was first given this formula that would be using, I made two characters or two threat stat blocks. I made the Cobra Soldier, uh, threat level zero Mook, and I needed to make sure that at the very minimum, are we giving these low threat level characters enough to, uh, to to serve a purpose? To They're not just showing up and getting wiped out. They're still interesting. They still stand out from one another, despite having very few skill differences to differentiate them. So I needed to make sure that the Cobra Soldiers were interesting and functional on their own, and then the second threat that I designed was Cobra Commander, so that we were when we were on the opposite end of the spectrum, if, like, is a, a high threat level, the highest threat level character in the game at the time, or in the G.I. Joe version of the game at the time, would he be manageable to run? He wouldn't be overwhelming for GMs. He wouldn't have too much. He wouldn't have too little. So I designed the two of them based on, again, the, uh, the formula that we had, 
but at the time we didn't have a minimum maximum number of perks and powers it really was just make this what you need it to be to be what you are designing and in the case of i believe the majority of essence 20 threats what you are adapting from the source material and uh from there started designing my own tools for threat making which uh, i'll i'll go into as we go through the steps for threat design um which we are going to be referencing the field guide but i'm not going to be just verbatim from the field guide i'm going to be adding a lot of my philosophy about the choices i make when i am designing a threat where i feel like you could put in a little more uh interpretation where you could bend the rules a little bit and then the opposite where you have to be really strict with the rules um so the the purpose of this as far as i'm concerned is that if you are designing threats for your home game this will be uh, helpful anecdotes or just interesting insight from somebody who has designed a lot of threats also if you're interested in getting into essence 20 threat design professionally this will also be helpful i, I want to give you the tools you need so that when it is time to design threats on your own you've got a leg up and thirdly if you're just interested in this as a gm who wants to run threats and would appreciate the insight into how they were designed you think that will help you in how you would run it absolutely you are also going to find some useful stuff here but let me just wrap up the the history of threats threat design and uh, my connection with it in essence 20. so um normally i i don't try to tend to be this critical of other products, especially ones that I didn't work on, but I will have to go into a lot of the problems that arose when the Power Rangers role-playing game Core Rulebook came out. The majority of the issues with that book were in the threats section because it just, it didn't define what the threats were. It didn't follow the formula that I was given for how to design threats. And it, it really, the threats were not consistent with essence 20 they had skills that were not skills in the game they had abilities that were not defined in ways that made sense with essence 20. uh it was a really problematic section and so when a lot of people um when a lot of the critique against that book was focused on what is up with the threats it, it's hard to argue as much as i might empathize with the people that were working on the power rangers book it was hard to argue with a lot of the criticisms about that threat section and on top of those issues, there was also a choice made early on about what to include in that threats chapter. So even if none of those other issues existed, there was still the issue of there were not a lot of threats. The threat levels were a very small selection. And, and there were no rules for designing your own threats. And this being Power Rangers specifically was where you would expect to have some kind of uh, threat design rules because it's a monster of the week. That's part of the formula. So one of the first make goods that Renegade uh, decided to do was to release threat design rules as a standalone PDF for free so that if you bought the book and you were unsatisfied or worse, you didn't know if you could even run a campaign just using the threats that were in the core rulebook, Renegade had your back. Now, again, I had nothing to do with the Power Rangers core rulebook beyond being one of the designers of the Essence 20 system. So I was 
pretty low on the list of people that they were coming to for, for help with what happened, especially before the Joe role-playing game core rulebook came out. But at the time, this is the era that I will often refer to as the Wild West era of Essence 20 design, where uh, if you had an idea, you threw it out there, you did it, you didn't have a format, you just did it the way you think it should be done, and that created the format. Um, oftentimes, there were a lot of channels where just the different designers and developers said, they threw their ideas out there and they said, if anyone has time to critique this, great, we can use some feedback. And so that happened with the original version of the threat design document that was going to be put out. The We were asked if anyone had any thoughts, share them. And I read it over and I had thoughts because it was a combination of, I found the writing very defensive and I could understand because the wound was still fresh about people complaining about the core rulebook when it came out. That probably unintentionally, it was trying to justify a lot of the choices for how the chapter ended up being the way it was. But the other thing is that it just did not offer tangible advice. It really seemed to just want to keep saying, as the GM, we empower you to create the things you want. Make it whatever you want it to be. Essence 20 was so young that people didn't know how to make it what they wanted it to be. And I knew that that's what this document was. So... I volunteered to to rewrite the document from the ground up that I would take the formula that I was given, which was present in the, the, the original version of the document, uh, and I would reverse engineer the, the everything else I did for my threats so that uh, we could put something out and it would be consistent and this would become the template for what threats would look like going forward in Essence 20. Um, and I, I did that. Uh, this became my first... Uh, on, and only purely Power Rangers credit. And um, the plan was always that this would eventually get put into a book so that those who didn't know to go onto the website to gain access to this information, they would eventually be able to get it in a book. And because it wasn't promised in the Power Rangers role-playing and core rulebook, it's not like something that people expected. And then uh, we had to kick it, you know, kick the can further along for people to be able to finally get the thing that uh, was promised earlier. This was not a promise. This was a make good. And uh, I do think that Renegade handled that whole situation pretty well. So I did these threat design rules. We put it out there. The threat creation section on the Discord became one of the most popular sections on the Discord. People to this day are still using that threat design document although now they're probably also using the field guide to action and adventure. But uh, yeah, they are still using that in the threat design section of the Power Rangers Discord on, uh, sorry, of the Power Rangers, the, the threat design channel of the Power Rangers section of the Renegade Discord. So that document, if you haven't read it, is largely the same as the main section in Chapter 5 of Essence 20, Field Guide to Action and Adventure, which is the Creating Threats chapter, which is a combination of that document, um, two other kinds of stat blocks, so the NPC stat blocks and contact stat blocks. And then each setting would also get their own rules for how to design threats so that no matter what setting you wanted, we needed to make sure that you were uh, delivering the needs, delivering onto the needs of the setting, but also that... Um, if the setting had something specific to how they format it. So uh, the main, the biggest example being how in Transformers, Cybertronian threats will have alt modes and that changes the format of the threat stat block. That's the kind of stuff that would cover it in the individual sections. Uh, 
But uh, by and large, all of this chapter outside of the NPC stat blocks and the contacts was built uh, using that original document that I had created for the Power Rangers. And in fact, a lot of that chapter, sorry, and in fact, a lot of that PDF was stuff that was also originally written for the G.I. Joe role-playing game core rulebook, just updated with Power Rangers examples. So let's start talking about designing threats. The first thing you need to do is come up with your concept. So this has the shortest section in all of the threat design steps because it seems like it should be self-explanatory, but we're going to expand on it quite a bit here. So the concept is what is the threat? But beyond that, once you have your idea of what I want this threat to be, so I'll be using a lot of G.I. Joe examples here. It's the ones that come most naturally to me. Um, and I am looking around at the G.I. Joe toys that I have uh, within line of sight and asking, is that something that I could adopt, adapt into Essence 20? So, um, here we go. The Royal Procession, the Cobra Imperial Guard. This is actually a very good example because... Uh, for those who don't know, this was in the early 2000s during what's usually called the New Sculpt era. They not only was Hasbro releasing uh, G.I. Joe's in this new format, which was a little more uh, super exaggerated um, uh, proportions and a little bit more superheroic to design, but they were also supplementing their main line with a second line of repaints using the uh, three and three quarter inch figures from the 80s and 90s. Sometimes it was just a straight repaint. Sometimes it was a mix and match of parts. This one is a mix and match of parts. It is the, uh, I believe they're just called Imperial Guard, and I believe the set was called the Imperial Procession. So it takes the Range Viper head and legs and combines them with the Cobra Commander, the Battle Armor Cobra Commander, torso and arms. So what we end up with is this skull-faced, brain-exposed-looking uh, soldier uh, a little bit beefed up by armor uh, in this gold and bronze color scheme that um, really has like a, a formal regal fanciness to it. And, you know, being Imperial Guard, you do get the sense that this is more of a dress uniform and that these are uh, designed specifically to invoke fear and respect for Cobra Commander. And I don't know if the only weapon they come with is this Cobra Staff with a Cobra flag on it, but that is what I've got mine posed with. So that brings me to the second part of concept beyond just what is this thing? And that is asking yourself, and how does it work in combat? If you are familiar with the doppelganger in third edition of Dungeons and Dragons, this was a monster that was designed without asking that second question, I believe anyway. So the problem with the doppelganger in 3.5 Dungeons & Dragons is that it was a shape changer. It could pose as somebody else. And once, once you saw through the ruse, once you overcame its shape-changing ability and you attacked the person, so let's say they were a city official or whatever, and then combat broke out, they had virtually no offensive abilities. All of their unique abilities were tied into the ruse which means that the combat was a foregone conclusion because they were below average combatants for their uh, their their level. 
meaning it just became this beatdown of somebody that was pretending to be someone else. And then now this group of adventurers is ganging up on them and just beating them up. So in that case, if we were developing some kind of doppelganger, the key would be that part one is it could be anyone, it could be anywhere. They've got these shape-changing abilities that let them pretend to be someone else. And then we would say, and now what did they do in combat? And with even just that basic concept, we have a lot to can go with. It's like, all right, they've got shape-changing ability. So on their turn, they can turn their arms into the weapon that they need it to be. It cannot be mechanical. It cannot throw, you know, fire any projectile. It cannot use up any kind of ammunition. But they could turn their arm into a long spear if they need to blast somebody farther away. They can create a shield out of their arm. Using that same shape-changing concept and saying, and now how did we make this an interesting combat? And so if we're looking at the Imperial Guard, that is the same kind of situation. You can fall into the same mistake as the third edition doppelganger did and just say, we need this to be the fanciest Cobra soldier. We need to have like bonuses to intimidation. We need them to have this banner that they wave and like both bolsters everyone else. And yeah, that's all great. But if they aren't doing anything that carries their own weight, if they are just basically a bar that's standing in the background, then you are losing the ability to use this on its own. And maybe that's what you want. Maybe the idea is that you will only ever have them at, you know, some kind of Cobra Imperial March scene. And so you're guaranteed to have actual combatants there and they can just be, uh, you know, like in um, in Fury Road, the, the guy with the flamethrower guitar. They could just be that guy, only instead of a flamethrower guitar, they've got a cool Cobra staff. But I mean, the design does have the scary face, and it does have the armored torso, which implies that maybe they are combat competent. So they could then, if we were designing them, double as bodyguards and these, uh, in you know, these, these uh, intimidators. So we would probably give them some basic weapons. But we would also say that this staff doubles as some kind of a long-range melee weapon and that they could beat people with it. So we would say on their turn, we need to make sure that they can hold their own. They will mostly be a melee combat combatant. They are well-armored so they can take a hit and they are scary. And there we go. So that is adding to our concept. So not only is our basic concept, we've got these Cobra Imperial Guards that are mostly only going to show up for, you know, fancy processions involving Cobra Commander. But if a fight breaks out, they've got Cobra Commander's back. The next step is threat level. And there's a whole bunch of numbers for determining the threat level. And this is mostly important for then the build. But I do think that there is storytelling in every new number in a role-playing game. And in the case of threat levels, it means where does it fit in, at least in G.I. Joe's case, the hierarchy of G.I. Joe threats. So when I was designing the threats in the G.I. Joe role-playing game core rulebook, I made a giant list of every individual character and troop type that was in the original uh, 1980s to 1990 G.I. Joe Real American Hero toy line. And I ranked them. And I did this so that if we eventually statted out every single one of these, then we had a couple of individual named characters every couple of levels so that no matter what level a GM was designing for, was designing an adventure for, they could use one of these named characters as a boss at low level or a lieutenant at mid-level or, you know, um, 
eventually you'll get so high level that a character like Wild Weasel, who is like a big threat early on, just becomes one of the pilots in a scene with a whole bunch of Cobra generic pilots. So it was a matter of finding like who is important enough or distinct enough that they have uh, their own name and they get their own individual stat block, but they are also outmuscled by generic troopers of certain types. And so it, it was like just creating this hierarchy because um, because it would mean something if we put in a Cobra Viper of a certain type, let's say an Arrow Viper, like a, a fairly obscure helicopter. Oh no, he was the Condor pilot. Is an Aero Viper a better pilot than a Strato Viper? Does it matter? It, does it need to be a wide gap? So stuff like the Eels. The Eels definitely needed to be one of the highest threat level of the basic troopers. Because Eels are written as they are the Navy Seals of Cobra. They are some of the best, the toughest. Uh, but they couldn't be so high level because there's a... <laughs> one of the tropes of the file cards for, for Cobra troopers was... They were drawn from the toughest volunteers from the Eels. So the Eels already outrank a whole bunch of generic troopers, but then they had to be outranked by a whole bunch that are drawn from the Eels ranks. So it was just a, a delicate balance of finding where these threat levels make the most sense. And you can add to that stuff like, well, this is the Flak Viper. The Flak Viper has a, a linked rocket launcher on their backpack that just means they have to be a certain level so even though they are relatively obscure nobody is pining for when the flak viper will finally make it into the game but when they do we do have to acknowledge this their specialty is that they are rocket launchers and to pull off their gimmick mechanically we would have to say fine they've got some kind of integrated rocket launcher system so that they are hands-free just like the action figure was because at least uh, as far as what I do, what you do with the threat design rules, you can be uh, completely free. But the majority of the time, I am adapting something that already exists. So to actualize the purpose of something like a Flak Viper, I would need to make it a certain threat level just to justify the mechanics that have to go into it, which is a hands-free linked rocket launcher. Next up, health, size, and movement. So this section is one of the reasons that I am very happy that the threat design rules got formalized and that we're more or less all on the same page about this. Although health is something that there's a lot of contention between uh, the different designers, uh, which I'll get to in a second. But basically, once you've chosen your threat level, actually there's something that kind of got added in the writing of the threat design rules that should have been its own distinct step, and that is... What is its purpose? It kind of got uh, lumped in with the health for some reason. But basically, is this a resilient, a typical, or a canny, uh, you know, threat? And the difference being resilient is that's your Hulk. They're just the biggest, the strongest. They're pretty basic, but they're super tough. And so they'll get fewer powers and fewer perks to reflect the fact that they don't have a lot going on beyond just being super good. Uh, yeah, I mean, super tough. And their trade-off is that they get the most health. They get their threat level times 1.5, which means that any individual threat will always have more health than the average uh, PC. 
Because even if a PC is fully committed to the conditioning skill and chooses all the options to get the most health, a threat is supposed to take on four of them with the potential of taking on four of them, four PCs that optimized their health. And so uh, in the story, why do all the bad guys have more threats than the good guys? Unless you're playing a bad guy campaign, then suddenly the good guys have more threats. That's part of just the storytelling and how it has to be. Otherwise, you the other option is that you're constantly outnumbering your PCs with NPCs, which is a viable scene for combat sometimes, but you really should mix it up. So just for them to fill their purpose in the game, they need a lot of health. So uh, resilient are the kind that have a lot of health, not a lot of powers. Typical is right down the middle. And canny are the smart characters that have a lot of options going on and can really mess with the battlefield. But once the players get through their tricks, they're easy enough to take down. So the question is, are Imperial Guard, are they... I don't think they're resilient. I think we need to say they're at least typical, if not canny, because we do we are building on the idea that they are combat-capable, intimidating figures. So uh, it, it is kind of feeling like this is a typical threat. So all of their powers are going to be committed to, all their perks and powers are going to be committed to them uh, bolstering everyone else and scaring the PCs. But they're also going to have pretty decent stats. So the stats will drive how they fight in combat. It'll be just a, a, probably a might-based skill. We'll get to that in a minute. And a, an average amount of health, which in this case, health would equal their threat level. So when I was saying that there's a different philosophy between the different designers of uh, how to handle health, I don't think any NPC should have a conditioning, any ranks in conditioning. I think that's just not something that we should worry about for NPCs. We should take it off the list and we should consider only the health that they get from the uh, from being threats, whether they are resilient, typical, or canny. I will admit that that does mean that there are fewer strength-based skills and therefore designers might tend towards more of the speed-based skills and accidentally give them a higher evasion and make a character that the concept feels like they should be a strong character, stronger than they are fast, but the stats say technically they're faster than they are strong. Um, but I mean, that's where you just throw in some uh, athletics and brawn. We'll get to that when we get to uh, how to allocate skills for a threat. Um, size and movement. These are also more or less defined by your um, the choices you've made already. So your threat level, actually the threat level doesn't really affect your size or your movement. Uh, until we get to perks and powers. But yeah, there's a baseline. You're small or common by default, and there are perks and powers that make you larger. Uh, but when you get to the Transformers rules, you'll see that the exception is that you can actually be anything between small and large by default. Uh, basically, the default sizes should always match the default origins from the setting that you're designing threats for. Although in uh, Transformers case, they do get up to huge, and I think the only way to get huge is you need to spend a perk or a power on it. All right, and then movement, it's 30 foot ground, 40 foot if you are typical or... Oh, no, just typical. Canny and resilient are both the ones that are slower because they are bogged down by potential in one direction or another. All right, essence scores, skill ranks, and defenses. Again, your threat level has dictated how many essence points you get. 
it is your threat. Anyway, I don't need to go into the equation. If you've got the field guide, you know what the equation is. But this is allocated more or less like a player character, except that you're getting all the points at once and you're putting them where they belong. When I am allocating my skills, I like to I like to have one specialization because specializations are fun to roll and because they tell a story. It also tells me which direction mechanically I should focus on and then everything else kind of falls into place. So I could just in my head without doing any of the numbers say the Imperial Guard should have a D8 and specialization on fear in intimidation, which so D8 is four specialization will bring that up to five. So I've actually got my, uh, oh, you know what? I'd never defined the threat level. So let's talk about the threat level of an Imperial Guard. It is someone that should be respected enough within the organization that they can walk side by side with Cobra Commander. And not only will he trust them to not turn on him, but that if something does happen, he trusts them to defend him, which means that they should probably be about threat level nine, I want to say. Once we get into the double digits, we're getting to super specialized. That's where the monstrous ones, the ones that have been genetically modified, and the individual characters come in. So a nine threat level trooper is quite significant, and it means that we can actually have four of them in a combat at the level that PCs would be taken on Cobra Commander. And so four of them wouldn't be overwhelming the, the PCs. All right, so we're going to say nine. So without looking at, uh, I've got my spreadsheet open, without looking at what threat, uh, what skill points I should have, I know that I should have, I, I have it in my head that I want five in Intimidation, which means everything else should be a D8 or a D6 for the main things they do, and then cherry pick some D2s and D4s for the things that might come up or that we have to acknowledge like initiative. So going down any of the other strength-based skills, we've got Athletics, that's a maybe. And I'll tell you how we're going to resolve that later. Brawn is something that I usually will use to bump up some D, uh, some uh, of the toughness of a threat. It does not come up that often in combat, although some weapons do have prerequisites that require a certain amount of brawn, like rocket launchers and submachine guns. And I do respect that. I, I build the skills as though I'm still building a PC, and the weapons that I arm them with, I default to the ones that the PCs have access to. So brawn sometimes comes up, even though it never gets rolled, because it bolters your toughness and it opens up different weapon possibilities. Uh, conditioning, I already said we pass on. Intimidation, I've got covered. And then might. So I like the idea that they are melee combatants. The question is, you know what? I think this should be a finesse-based melee combatant. The main reason being that um, if you think of flag drills and whatnot, they are really like fancy free with their with the flags. So uh, yeah, I can see that when a fight breaks out, they're actually using martial arts maneuvers. In fact, maybe they could even use the flag part of the flagpole to like trip up or wrap up their uh, or or distract, like use that as part of their maneuver. So we're gonna say their main combat stat is finesse. So we're going to jump over to speed and say, all right, finesse is going to be five skill ranks. And again, this is all going to get modified. I'm just going to put what I think it should have. And then we're going to look at the reality of how many skill points I actually just put out there and usually lower things in chunks. So all the fives will become fours. 
etc. Um, I was going to then uh, go down the rest of the speed ones, but you know what I just realized? If we are going to do some kind of bodyguard thing with these, uh, these troops, they need alertness. So we're going to go to smarts, and alertness is one that they absolutely need. We're going to say four ranks instead of five ranks. Oh, sorry, I said five ranks in finesse, but I'm... You know, I'm going to leave it. I was going to say drop it down to four, but maybe it'll be four with specialization. Some advice that you do see in that section for threat design is that it's just easier on GMs if you dedicate as many of the skills to a single die type. And that way, if it's above that die type, it really shows that, oh, this is important to that threat. And anything that's below it is probably something that is just there just in case or because we didn't have enough skill points to make everything the same. And so those are the ones that got sacrificed. So here we are now. I've got their main strength-based skill is Intimidation. Their main uh, speed-based skill is Finesse. And their main smarts-based skill is Smarts. Sorry, is Alertness. <laughs> Which brings us to Social. And I will actually usually go uh, into Social earlier. Just because when it comes to threats, Social tends to be the dump stat. Because people often think of social as the skill that doesn't come up in combat as often. And when it does, it's usually intimidation. So we've got animal handling, we've got deception, we've got performance, we've got persuasion, we've got streetwise. You know which one stands out to me? Performance. Because I was just talking about doing the flag drills. I think that if you were training to be this Imperial Guard, performance would be part of it. And so... Even though it's already got Intimidation and we could have a perk later that says, um, you know, you, you roll Intimidation for Performance Steel Text. No, I like the idea of Performance as its main social skill, which means that now I've already earmarked that when we get to the perks and powers, I need to give them an ability that lets them use Performance in combat. Performance is the, the most flavorful and the least uh, mechanically defined of the skills this is the perfect opportunity to find some fun way to uh, to bring performance into a build. So we definitely know that when we get to the perks and powers, there's going to be some kind of performance. In fact, you know what? Earlier when I was saying that we might use finesse, we that you can distract at the flag, we could have some kind of like Cobra flag waving ability that says make a performance skill test against the willpower or uh, cleverness of a target, uh, probably as a free action. If you beat them, then you get an edge on attacks against that target. Or they gain the... Um, uh, there's that one condition that's just kind of the general uh, impaired. Uh, I don't know my conditions as well as I probably should. But yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I'm very happy with that right now. So that means that we've already got one stat per essence score that is dedicated to delivering on the purpose. So now is a good time to see how many essence points we actually have. So we said this is threat level nine. Threat level nine lets us have 24 ranks. And right now we have 18 ranks. That's assuming if we do five ranks in intimidation, which would be D8 plus a specialization in fear. Uh, five ranks in finesse, which would probably be D8 plus a specialization in uh, you know staff fighting. However, we're going to define that. Uh, alertness is a D4. Oh, sorry, it's four ranks. So it's a D8. And performance is D8. Um, so uh, we can have 24. We have 18. That gives us six left to play with. So let's go straight to initiative. That's usually the first one after I get the main concepts out of the way. That's the first one I look at. Uh, so initiative. Do we want to just do a D2? Or 
now we start asking the questions, what makes the most sense for an Imperial Guards initiative to be? If they're a bodyguard, we do want them to get a jump on anyone that, uh, you know, they've got the high alertness. If alertness fails, initiative is their second line of defense to protect Cobra Commander. So a D2 is not going to cut it. Um, when It's rare that I go above a D4 for initiative. Especially if we are thinking of this, this is the majority of times you're going to use one of these Imperial Guards. There's going to be four of them on the scene. If all of them have above a D4, there's a chance that they just all go first and overwhelm the PCs. So no, uh, we're going to go with two ranks in initiative to give them a D4, which means we are up to 20 ranks total, which gives us four more to play with. All right, so we got to ask ourselves, do we want anything else for smarts? Uh, do they need culture? Maybe, but then it needs to come up somewhere practically in the stat block. Or maybe it doesn't, actually. So there's something that I often forget that is baked into the threat design rules. And that is that uh, if... Here it is. Threats that pull double duty in combat and other scenes gain bonus essence points to assign to smarts and social skills. So at threat level one, add two additional essence points to the pool for sociable uh, threats to spend on smarts and social skills. At each of threat level 10, 15, and 20, add an additional five essence points to the threats pool. So as a first level threat, it would only get two additional ones. So here's, let's go back to where why this came up. Culture, the idea is if you capture one of these Imperial Guards and you are interrogating them and you want to know what they know about Cobra's inner workings or something, it, it just, it feels appropriate for them to have culture. But it does it feel important enough that we would give it two and we would treat them as a double duty? Now, these are mostly going to be just in combat. It, it's probably going to be pretty late in the game if you're ever facing these Imperial Guards. Odds are Cobra Commander's right there and they are the last thing between you and them. And even if he escapes, it leads to another adventure. It doesn't just lead to a, some kind of interrogation scene. So we're going to earmark culture that if at the end I have a D2 or a D4 left to invest, that'll make them a little bit smarter. In fact, oh, I may have just convinced myself that they need at least a D2 in culture. Uh, mostly, So right now, this is a common trapping. Right now, speed is the highest essence score. And this isn't even a character that needs infiltration or acrobatics. But just if we do nothing else, these are going to be fast characters. And even with the the like martial arts way that they handle the staff, I did not see them as speed over the uh, strength. So for the sake of making sure that speed is in the highest essence, I'm going to go in and add a D4 to brawn. Oops, so that means uh, two ranks in brawn, and we'll do two ranks in culture. All right, so we've reached our 24, which means that they've got seven strength, seven speed, six smarts, and four social. I feel like I was all over the place, so I'm going to walk us through this again. Speed is the preferred essence point. Uh, speed has some advantages. One, there is an additional skill in there. Every other skill has, every other essence score has five skills tied to it. Speed has six. Two, they're all very good. Or some of them are situationally useful, but it's a situation that comes up more often. So acrobatics is probably the one that comes up the least. 
driving. There's just a certain chunk of characters that absolutely need driving. We won't say that these are also Cobra Commander's chauffeurs, so we will save ourselves having to worry about driving. Uh, finesse is a certain type of fighter. Infiltration is usually pretty important. Initiative is very important. And targeting. We did not give him any targeting. Okay. That's probably a problem. Although, let me go. Here's what I often do in the research. I will go to either 3djoes or yojo.com. In this case, I got to go to yojo.com because 3djoes only covers 82 to 94. Uh, for now, but by design, that is uh, Carson's passion as far as G.I. Joe goes, whereas Yojo covers much more. But unfortunately, the the um, admin has lost access to the site um, because of like a partnership that they kind of got screwed over in. So Yojo is not going to be able to be expanded upon. And if there are any problems, uh, they will never be fixed and it will never be able to update. So 3D Joe's has that cool rotating feature. Yojo doesn't have that, but Yojo has content that 3D Joe's doesn't have. So we'll look up Imperial Guard. There's the Cobra Imperial Guard. That is the name of this action figure. And let's see what weapons it came with. It really does just come with the flag. So this is one of the rare times where I can get away with them not having any targeting. And that, so that makes sense because their intimidation will be their ranged attack. It will, they'll, they'll make anyone attacking at range. Yeah, there we go. So that's, that's cool. We'll give them some kind of, uh, loyalty stare, death stare. Death stare works because they've got that skull face, but it doesn't work because it implies that it kills them. So I don't know the face of death. Maybe, uh, face of death will be an intimidation based skill that they are a power or perk that they get. And it will allow them to um, maybe even do stun damage at range with just that cold black-eyed stare. Yes. Okay. I have just figured out how we can get away with not having targeting on this. So, yeah, without targeting, uh, their only two speed-based skills are finesse and initiative, both of which I am happy with. Their strength-based skills are brawn, which uh, maybe I should know. You know what? I'm going to go with athletics. So Brawn would have given me more options for their weapons, but again, they really, the toy only came with one. So I am only obliged and by obliged, I'm just talking about by my own rules of how I've designed threats based on G.I. Joe toys. Uh, I am only obliged to make sure that all of their accessories are accounted for in the build. And right now they only have the one, uh, which does not have a Brawn requirement. So athletics just means that if it comes up, if they need to do some kind of something physical, if they need to chase, if they need to be chased, we have a skill that can uh, be the catch-all for how they participate in those things. So that still leaves us with seven strength, seven speed, six smarts, because I gave them four alertness, uh, sorry, yeah, four alertness and two culture, uh, which is fine. They don't need science, survival, or technology. And then if we go over social, poor social usually only gets the one skill and it's usually the one that best defines their uh, role in how they would engage in things outside of combat, uh, which in this case is performance, which I am very happy with in this case. Uh, even very early on, before I even thought about the skills, I compared them to a bard. So the fact that we're going with performance so that when, uh, when we get into our perks and powers, we have a skill that we can tie into it, that's perfect. And that's, that's what I want to do. You figure out what skills they need to have and then that's informs how your perks and powers work because if 
he didn't have performance, if he just had deception or a, whatever, a generic thing streetwise, and then it's never referred to in any of the um, perks and powers, it's a waste of skill points. They're mandatory because you do need something in social unless you unless it's a robot, unless it's an animal. Uh, something that you can get away with not having social. Although we were inconsistent. Sometimes animals are, they default to intimidation is a social skill. Sometimes they get animal handling if they're, uh, you know, an animal that can manipulate other animals easily. But yeah, for the most part, uh, social gets neglected. And so it's something that I want to make sure that we don't neglect entirely here. And we have found a nice and flavorful way of using social, which will then come up later when we get to the perks and powers. So uh, we've assigned the essence scores, which means we've got our defenses already figured out. Um, armor notwithstanding, we've got seven strength, so 17, 17 toughness, 17 evasion, 16 willpower, 14 social. Pretty nicely well-rounded character. And one of the um, audits that I do when I am done designing a character is to take their highest essence score, subtract their threat level from it, and make sure that it is higher than their lowest essence score. With a threat level nine character, that actually gives a very wide range and probably the whole thing falls apart. But yeah, the highest is a seven, the lowest is a four. I'm happy with that spread. Um, at some point, I'm not sure when in the steps we would assign equipment, but we can keep in mind right now that they have Cobra Commander's battle armor and there is like a technological vibe to the whole character which means that they could probably get one of the uh, battle dresses that is both a toughness and a uh, evasion uh, bonus. And again, this is my own personal preference is that all of the options that we use for the threats should be drawn from the options that are available to the players. And here we go with the uh, mechanized armor, like an accelerator suit gives plus two evasion and plus two toughness. Oh, this doesn't feel like heavy armor to me because the pants are a little bit lighter. But if we go one lower to hex mesh, uh, like tactical armor with a built-in kinetic shield or shield generating hardware is the description. It's medium armor. This feels like it's somewhere between medium and heavy and plus one evasion and plus one toughness. I like that. Yeah, I think that this, we didn't need to do this now, but we're going to do hex mesh so that it has 18 toughness, 18 evasion, and uh, it does mean that when the GM has to figure out how they're defending themselves, it doesn't matter in this case. Sometimes you want a threat that has a very different uh, strength and speed, partially because the way they defend themselves is, is part of the story of the character. Like if we were designing a red ninja, we want to make sure that they have a high speed so that they have a high evasion so that when the PCs, if they are attacking with an ability that, that dictates what kind of defense it is, and they get to dictate, oh no, I'm attacking the toughness of this character. That feels like, oh, that should be a character that is susceptible to this because he's wearing a gi, he's not wearing any kind of armor. If you manage to make contact, it's going to hurt. Whereas in this case, the armor is so technological looking that we can justify it being one of the more technological options, a computerized uh, battle dress option. Um, and it's not so technological or actually it, it actually also looks like it's big chunks of metal, which means having it both uh, a toughness and an evasion bonus makes sense to me. Sometimes the things that make sense to me are the things I feel I need to explain the most. 
even though they're probably some of the most uh, self-explanatory. All right, perks, powers, and hangups. We already are halfway done our main features here, but let's just see technically how many perks and powers we should have for a threat level nine typical threat. All right, perks and powers are the biggest differentiator between two otherwise similarly built creatures. Uh, perk is a static benefit. Power is something that use is uh, takes an action to activate. So we're probably going to have more powers than perks. Uh, threats gain one perk at threat level one. This is something that was added after the Power Rangers PDF. So if you have the Power Rangers PDF, know that the one that showed up in the Field Guide to Action Adventure is a little bit different. It's a little meatier. And basically, it's because perks and powers are fun. And they do add a lot of personality to threat design. And we were feeling like, especially the low-level threats, the ones that need their personalities to find the most, uh, they were struggling. So everyone gets a perk at level one. Then resilient threats, he is not. Typical threats gain one additional threat every three threat levels. Ah, I love how that worked out because I said threat level nine. It's every three, which means we get four perks. Nice clean math. I don't feel like I've got a remainder perk lying around somewhere. I don't have to worry about, oh, maybe he is canny so that we get an extra perk. Uh, sneak in an extra one. No. We clearly just made the, the limit for that three. Uh, for, you know, the third of the ones that you get every three levels. And we get the one at level one. So four. Uh, you can use perks to gain a power. Uh, plus one damage to an attack. Uh, make an additional attack. Anyway, a variety of static bonuses. Movement uh, things. Size things. Health things dictate the defense of an attack we're not going to worry about any of that and we're going to go straight to the powers because we've already defined three powers that we want so we've got that uh you know the the face of death i'll have to look to make sure that we don't already have not that this is ever oh uh, you know what maybe i will actually stat this up and uh post it somewhere uh i am recording this hours before i plan on publishing it though so uh it's not going to be at the same time as the episode goes up but anyway um face of death if this were something that I was going into the product, a step that I need to make sure I do more often is to make sure I'm not reusing a name for another perk somewhere else in the game. Uh, the fewer times that we use the same name for two completely unrelated rules, the better. So uh, face of death is a uh, ranged intimidation. Um, let's say we can either say 100 feet or within line of sight. We'll say 100 feet just to cap it off. Uh, because line of sight is vague and, and having a number is easier on a GM. They can count squares. So this face of death uh, power will be they make an intimidation skill test against the willpower or cleverness of a single target. On a success, the target suffers one stun. The question is what, what action activates this? If we do it as a standard action then that is asking a lot. But you know what? No, the standard action makes sense because it's the long-ranged one. And without a ranged weapon, if we said it was a move action or a free action and limited the number of times I could do it per day or per scene or per turn, um, yeah, if we did it as a free action, then we would get to the standard action. And it's like, I don't know the main things this character is going to do this turn because... He's a melee combatant with no ranged weapons. So we're going to say as a standard action, you can do that intimidation skill test against the willpower or evasion. No, not willpower or evasion. Willpower or cleverness. Cleverness is mental evasion. Yeah, the willpower or cleverness of a target within 100 feet. On a success, the target 
suffers stun one. It's not the stunned condition. I kind of dislike the stunned condition just because telling a player you are losing so much of a turn, like you're there to play the game. And yeah, stun also removes the, the move action and stunned. So yes, the, the stun versus stunned debate. I am on the side of we should get rid of the stunned condition and just focus on stun damage because it still lets players do things on their turn. They are players. They should be able to play. Like it's integral to a game that players should play. The Anyway, um, that's where I stand. So I think this should do stun one. It also means that on a critical success, you can just double that so it's stun two, uh, which is not something that I think we use often enough. The fact that stun two means that they lose their action for multiple turns and you can stack up and knock them out. Um, yeah, I think that is all uh, useful. But now I've just kind of talked myself into a corner. The question is, does it make sense that these things are so intimidation? Yeah, I was going to say, does it make sense they're so intimidation that they can knock someone out with a stare? Yes, because people pass out when they're afraid. And um, if we're in this, the, the typical encounter I see them being used in is a combat with the four of them protecting a fleeing Cobra commander. If all four of them get initiative, which is possible because they have a D4 initiative, if they go first and they all target the same PC doing one or possibly even two stun damage, uh, especially if they target the, the, the tank of the group who probably doesn't have a great willpower or, or cleverness. Um, yeah, if they do that, they could knock someone out on the first turn. But that, that requires all of them succeeding, all of them ganging up on the same character, that character having both a bad willpower and cleverness. So the potential is there, but I still think that it's uh, justifiable. All right, so that is our intimidation-based skill. That means that having the uh, ranks in intimidate, they don't just use the default ways of using intimidation, which are more vague than I would like them to be. I wish that there was a little more. This is the main thing you can do with intimidation, and then also story-based and context-based uh, uses for it. But yeah, the um, we figured out their main use for intimidation. Um, we don't need a power for them using their staff as a weapon. That'll just be in the attacks section. So we might use that as a perk to uh, to bump up something about the weapon. Uh, give it a, some, some upgrades. Or let them use... Uh, uh, oh, you know what? Uh, it could be a power... Um, what is it? The energized close combat weapon. Okay, so... Yeah, I've now earmarked one of our perks to get them restricted gear. And they're going to have an energized close combat weapon. What element are we going to use? I feel like... Oh, okay. Three things come to mind. One of them, electricity. And we'll just say that they are tasers. Number two is fire because a fire-breathing snake is really cool. Number three is acid because an acid-spitting snake uh, is both biologically correct and is uh it means we get to we we get to justify using an element that doesn't come up as often so let's see acid weapons deal one extra damage when they hit a target who defended with toughness so if they've got this melee weapon that is just when it comes time to fight it starts just drooling acid 
Oh, maybe we should also give it a second range attack. No, no, we'll we'll say that this uh, is it's acid coated. They've got these big gloves. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so it is acid coated, and so it'll be whacking people. And when they're like, all right, well, I'll defend with toughness, and then if they hit, which they have a reasonable chance of hitting with, since they have D eight specialized, uh, it does acid damage, which does plus one when hitting with toughness. Yeah, this is turning out to be a really cool build. I'm uh, I'm very excited. All right. Um, so going back to powers, now we need to figure out the the, the flag drills. Um, let's give them two powers related to performance, just because it's rare that we get to weaponize performance like that. So one of them will be um, wave the flag or wave the cobra flag, and we'll say that either all allies or we can be a little fun with it and say all threats with the bullet stopper um with the bullet stopper perk they get something do they get an edge on attacks yeah okay here this is what's coming together cobra commander has his retinue right and his retinue is a bunch of low level uh threats let me just double check what he actually has so uh cobra commander has retinue cobra commander never leaves his headquarters unguarded this is in addition to the uh, the Imperial Guard. So if confronted on the battlefield outside of one of his bases of operation, a retinue accompanies Cobra Commander. This retinue is often four Crimson Guard or a dozen Vipers. So what's cool about that is that in the situation where Cobra Commander has four Imperial Guards, which do not count as retinue, they would have to be added on top of Cobra Commander's threat level. But again, because we're picturing this scenario where Cobra Commander is fleeing... Um, it would just be the fight before the Cobra Commander fight would be against these four Imperials, and we could have Cobra Commander's retinue on site. And if it's a dozen Vipers, a dozen Vipers is not going to do anything against the Joes normally. But let's see. So we say that they get an edge on attacks. It is targeting plus D2, which means that they would still need to basically roll a 20 to hit most PCs that... Oh, but you know what? If it's a threat level nine character, the Imperial Guard is, then, yeah, we, we have to be careful. I, I am envisioning a very specific use of them, but that would not be their only use. And so they could be one Imperial Guard that has just been sent out as the bard of the group, accompanied by some Vipers. Oh, sorry, I was looking at the wrong stats. Vipers have a D4 in targeting. Which means, yeah, if we say that they make a performance skill test, um, if we say against a difficulty equal of 10 plus the number of allies with the bullet stopper perk, uh, if they succeed, then all allies with the bullet stopper perk gain an edge on their attacks. So this is cool because it means that it's scaling up. So if I have a dozen Vipers in the scene, like Cobra Commander says, then I need to succeed at a difficulty 22 perform check with a D8. So 20 plus eight, the average roll is 15. So you're not going to get all 12 and it's all, it'll have to be at all or nothing. That'll have to be cleared that you don't... Or, or do we... No, yeah. So what I was just debating about whether it was just 
you roll the performance check and a number equal to your result minus 10 is the number that get the bonus, but no, it should be an all or nothing. You make the perform skill test. I'm thinking this should be a move action. Um, you make your perform check as a move action. And if you beat a difficulty equal to maybe it should be five plus the number of allies within line of sight with the bullet stopper perk, uh, on a success, every ally with the bullet stopper perk gains an edge on their attacks. Yes. Okay. So this is cool. So now suddenly those 12 Cobra Vipers that normally have very little chance of hitting uh, a ninth level PC, if this is a boss fight or uh, like an 18th level PC or even a 20th level PC, if we're talking about a Cobra Commander fight or a prelude to a Cobra Commander fight, suddenly they've actually got a chance and you just roll 24 D20s, uh, you know, taking the better of the two. So you're rolling them in pairs as just a barrage of Viper fire comes down on the Joes while these Imperial Guard are waving their flags. I love everything about this. I love the visual. I love the mechanics. I am very happy with that. So the other perform tech will be, um, uh, it'll be a free action and it'll be uh, a range of reach. It'll be usable once per turn. And it is, you are attacking the evasion. Yeah, so it targets the evasion. This is when we're trying to get the flag wrapped up to uh, to confuse and uh, uh, basically when they're in melee, they will use the flag on their flagpole as a distraction or actually to physically interfere with the movements of the Joes that they're fighting. So it will target their evasion. This will be a very specific, this targets their evasion perk. And um, does it let them do a maneuver? Yeah, I like that. Okay, I was thinking of something more complicated, but if we just say it lets them do a trip, a grapple, or a pull, then um, I got to worry about grapple because I don't like it, but the way the grapple rules are written, it is very specific skills. Let me look up what grapple, uh, what the requirements of a grapple weapon are. Um... All right, so the target of the grapple must not be, okay, so. Um, let me try to escape with an athletics, might, or finesse skill test against the grappler's toughness. Yeah, okay. Um, grapple underwent a lot of iterations in the design of the core rulebook, and it's it, it got left out as a, a weapon uh, effect and trait, which has caused some confusion because maneuvers still allow you to grapple. All right. So, uh, anyway, all that to say, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, uh, where I was going with this, which is that it is a performance targeting their evasion. And on a success, they get to perform a maneuver. Um, it has, it has, th this whole attack has a maneuver effect which means that when the GM does it, they get to choose whether they are grappling them as in actually physically wrapping the, the flag around some part of them, which is impeding their movement. Um, they get to shove them, which I guess is more like it's it's flapping the, the flag in their face, and so they have to stand back. Shove is the one that's probably the least uh, thematically tied, but trip 
trip is good. We can, uh, it doesn't have to be the flag. It can be the flagpole that knocks them down. So, um, this will be a free action. Um, the question is, is this something that's usable multiple times in a turn? I kind of like the idea that they get to do like all three potentially, but once they succeed at once, no, this is starting to get too complicated. Uh, I don't like that many caveats on an ability. The thing is that if I don't, if I say once per turn, then that means there is no way that this ever uses all five of its free actions. But that is probably for the best. Okay. So it will be a free action usable once per turn. They make a performance skill test against the evasion of a target within reach. And this weapon, oh, does it have reach times two or just reach times one? The energized power up in his reach times one. So what is the extended reach upgrade? What? Uh... Oh, okay. Extended is a standard upgrade. So yeah, we can give that, which turns the reach into reach times two, which I like. I feel like a flagpole should have an extended reach. So, uh although this is even not an attack, but rather a power. So I guess I could have even just said it's reach times two, but it's cleaner if we give the weapon reach times two and we say within the reach of the weapon. So uh, going back, it is a performance skill test. It is usable once per turn as a free action. The Imperial Guard can target the evasion of a creature within reach or uh, yeah, We'll say creature because it's targeting the evasion, and so we don't want to say targeting the evasion of the target. So targeting the evasion of a creature within reach on a success, the the attack has a maneuver effect. We'll, that, we would clean up the language there. So just to double check, we've got one intimidation-based power, two performance-based powers, and the last perk is being used to upgrade the weapon. I might be sneaking in an extra perk because uh, I think technically I shouldn't be able to get all the way up to restricted with a single perk, but let's see. You know what? I actually don't even know if we called out the specific details of using perks to gain restricted weapons. I think it might be, a, be something we eyeball. So, yeah, um, th but it does bring us to hang-ups. If I wanted, I could add a hang-up to make sure that we definitely can get this um, restricted weapon with a standard upgrade. The thing is, there's no... There's no inherent hang-up to this character. Like, the fact that it doesn't have a ranged weapon is... It's, you know, a, a penalty to its build, but not... Like, I don't want to say that this they can't use ranged weapons because, well, that's weird. It has no targeting skill. It would just be adding a hang-up for hang-up's sake. So, no, we're going to skip on the hang-ups. We don't need the extra perk. We don't have a purpose for a hang-up that none of the rest of the build cover covers, so we're going to skip the hang-up. All right, which brings us to attack. Its main attack is going to be this uh, acid-spewing, extended, energized melee weapon, or close combat weapon. We'll stat it out. I've got a whole document of all of the weapons 
in the uh, Jojo role-playing game core rulebook statted out in the format of threats. So I would just copy and paste that over and then add the upgrade and clean up the, uh, it like replace element with acid specifically. And so that's the kind of thing that there is nothing in the file card that says that these deal acid damage, but we managed to find something that justifies where this acid comes from. And so when we do the description of the, uh, the threat at the end of the threat stat block, sometimes I write the description first because it informs choices I should be making later on. Sometimes it's the last thing I do, which is when I look at all the things, the mechanical choices I've made, and now I have to uh, just pay them lip service in the description. Um, yeah, and now we're up to step seven, make it your... Oh, sorry. So uh, only one attack is extremely rare, even though it does have two powers that are attack-like. I suppose I would include unarmed combat in there in case it gets disarmed. Or, you know what? If I was writing this for publication, I would probably include it because I might need it just for the word count and pagination. So pagination is how much space on a page it takes up. And ideally, a threat stat block should be this set format so that with a picture, it's a single page doesn't always happen depends on the art budget if we can uh, like if a book calls for a certain number of threats and the book's budget doesn't justify art for all of those threats we have to bite the bullet and say like what's more important not delivering the number of threats that are expected in this book or making sure that we only have enough threats to match our art budget it's just one of those kind of choices that we have to make when we're in the uh, program management phase so if it really came down to making sure it fit a word count. I might throw in uh, an extra couple of attacks in there. I might throw in a grenade. Um, I was going to say a smoke bomb, but that is the opposite of what we want here because he's got a stair-based defense and a performance-based defense. So, uh, yeah. Um, these final touches would be mostly just to make sure that I hit the word count of uh, this threat that I've designed. So here we are, uh, about an hour into the episode, and uh, <laughs> I did not intend to design an Imperial Guard, but now I want to write an adventure or come up with some excuse to include the Imperial Guards in the adventure, because I think this is a really cool threat stat block that we just came up with. So um, yeah, that's that's my process when I am designing a threat. Uh, maybe I should just do a podcast every time I have to do a threat because other than actually having to write all this stuff down now, uh, getting a threat done in an hour feels like a pretty good amount of time. But speaking of time, it is a good time to wrap things up. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining me for episode 23 of Upshift, the No Direction Network's Essence 20 podcast. If you would like to hear other great gaming podcasts, you can go to nodirectionpodcast.com. I want to thank our patrons they are the ones that are helping to pay the bill on the network, making sure that we still uh, continue to run smoothly, that we sound great, and that we have room on our server for the myriad of great gaming podcasts that we put out. If you would like to support the network, you can go to patreon.com slash no direction. And of course, thank you to Word Burglar for the use of Letters from Snake Eyes Part 4. You can find out more at wordburglar.com. See you in two weeks for the next episode of Upshift. I let him in every day, my main meditation was 
taking them down. My pain medication, Shanna sighed. And she knew she couldn't call me, at least until I found out what happened to Tommy. That mission was private. For now, the objective was stopping the threat of this venomous collective. Spreading across the globe, I was ready to lock and load. With flash, grand slam, clutch, zap, and rock and roll. Hawk, steal a grunt, breaker, and short fuse. And before I knew, I gained a whole lot more to lose.